If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. I bet many of you have maybe not read the book of Zechariah or maybe not read it lately. So let this be an invitation to not neglect the end of the Old Testament, those little books back there. If you don't know where Zechariah is, don't be ashamed to use the table of contents, or you can go to the book of Matthew in the New Testament and start going backwards. It's a few books before the New Testament. Uh, Our text this morning is Zechariah chapter 4, and I will read the first seven verses of that chapter. Zechariah 4, 1 through 7. Hear God's word, please. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this your day. And we pray that as we open your word and talk about and study it together, I pray, O God, that you'll send forth your Holy Spirit, that he might teach us from your word, might reveal more of Jesus to us, might reveal more truth to us, that we might be changed by it and might be, li- might be able to live for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you might know, I live in Orlando. I work at Reformed Theological Seminary. I'm the dean of students over there. And there is a busy, busy, busy road that goes from my neighborhood to the seminary in Oviedo, where RTS is located. It's called Alafaya Trail. Some of you know Alafaya Trail. It goes right by University of Central Florida. Well, they're always doing something on Alvea Trail. And not too long ago, there was a sign, one of those big flashing electronic signs on Alvea Trail that said, paving ahead, expect delays. Paving ahead, expect delays. And when I saw that sign, I thought, I think that would be a great almost sermon title for the folks at New City. Instead of paving ahead, though, we might have to say something like, New Year ahead. Expect delays. Expect problems. Expect frustrations. Expect disappointment. Expect potholes. 
coming up here in 2024? Why would I say that you and I should expect problems in the new year? Well, think about this past year. Think about all the problems that we encountered this past year here in our country, for example. More mass shootings, continuing war in Ukraine, tensions between the U.S. and China, all these other things that we've been encountering, that awful attack by Hamas in Israel on October 7th, inflation, skyrocketing prices, you know, things getting worse and worse, it seems, all around us, the immigration crisis, fentanyl deaths, COVID fears, on and on. And I'm sure you've heard, too, that Taylor Swift dumped Travis Kelsey. I just made that one up. That's not true. (laughs) You're saying, what? What? How have I missed that? Lots and lots of issues that are really no laughing matter at all. So it's no wonder, right, friends, that we should expect potholes and delays in 2024. The Bible says to expect problems. Jesus said in John 16, in this world you will have tribulation. In Acts chapter 14, Paul says, through many hardships, we will enter the kingdom of God. So my question to you at New City Church today is this, how, how in the world, as you look ahead at all these uncertainties that we face in the new year, How will you navigate these things? How will I, how will we walk with hope into a new year when these things have happened so terribly in the past? Well, the prophet Zechariah is going to help us. He's going to show us how to navigate these things. And I need to begin by giving you some background. I have no doubt that when I read that passage of scripture, some of you were just thinking, what in the world is going on here? What has this guy been smoking that he sees this vision? So let me tell you a little bit of background, and I think it will orient us to the vision that the prophet Zechariah tells us about here in this chapter. The date is 520 BC. The place is Jerusalem. Now, nearly 70 years before this, which puts us at about 586 BC, There was an event that some of you know about. It was huge. It's called the exile. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came in and took captive thousands and thousands of Jewish people back to Babylon with him. It's called the exile, 586 BC. Fast forward a little bit to 536. Now we have a new king. His name was Cyrus of Persia. He allowed a mass migration. How's that for a contemporary word, right? He allowed for a mass migration of the Jewish people to return to their homeland. And that's what they did. Now, they had a temple at one time before this. It was the temple that King Solomon had built several hundred years before. It had been totally destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So, when these Israelites return to their homeland, what do they do? But they decide we need to rebuild our temple. Well, they had a governor. His name is given in this chapter. His name was Zerubbabel. Try saying that five or six times. (laughs) Zerubbabel. That was the governor. He led the effort 
to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But the problem is that they immediately ran into roadblocks. They ran into trouble. And you can read about this in the book of Ezra, chapter 4. But I'll summarize it by just telling you that there, there were pagan peoples, nations around Jerusalem at that time who did not know God and did not want a Jewish temple in their backyard. So they made it their business to discourage, to intimidate, to trick, to deceive, and to, in, to threaten the Jewish people long enough that they would stop rebuilding that temple. And they succeeded. It worked. Zerubbabel and the people of Israel lost heart. They caved into the pressure and they stopped rebuilding their temple. For 16 years, the foundation just sat there and the people just went on with their lives as though nothing had happened. They were discouraged. They lost heart. They were depressed. They gave up. But God did not give up on them. One thing he did was he sent them prophets prophets to tell them, get on about the business of rebuilding the temple. He sent them the prophet Haggai. Haggai said, build the house of the Lord. Stop being lazy. Get off your you-know-whats and get to work. He sent them not only Haggai, but Zechariah, the prophet about whom we're talking today. He is known as the prophet of encouragement. His name means the Lord remembers. That's what Zechariah means. The Lord remembers. It consists of 14 chapters. The first six of which tell us about eight different visions that Zechariah had. And we read just one of them here in chapter 4. This is the fifth of the eight visions And it's about a golden lampstand. You're going to see a picture of that, I think, in a moment. A golden lampstand and two olive trees. So, if you're keeping notes, if you're taking notes, here's here's your three-point outline today. I want to talk first about the main features of Zechariah's vision. And then the meaning of Zechariah's vision. And finally, four implications of Zechariah's vision. All right, so the main features, the meaning of it, and the implications of it. Let's dive in. First of all, there are the main features of Zechariah's vision. And there are going to be about four of these. Here's a little picture I found of the lampstand. That's the first of the four features of Zechariah's vision. Lampstands. Lampstands are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. There was a golden lampstand in the tabernacle where the people of God worshipped. There were ten lampstands in Solomon's temple, the one that I told you about earlier that had been destroyed. What does the lampstand in Zechariah's vision represent? Well, there's a clue way back in the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1, the apostle John is... In exile, there's that word again, on the island of Patmos. And he was in the spirit on the Lord's day in chapter 1 of Revelation. And he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. And John turns around to see who is speaking to him. 
and he sees seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, he sees one who looks like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. From his mouth, says John, came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Who are we talking about? Jesus. John sees Jesus walking about in the midst of seven golden lampstands. And Jesus speaks to John and he says this. The seven lampstands are the seven, does anyone know? Churches. Yes. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then Jesus begins to basically give John the content of seven letters that he writes to these seven churches. So what is the lampstand in Zechariah's vision? It represents the people of God. The people of God. Now for Zechariah, this meant the nation of Judah, who had returned to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. Judah was to be the light of the world. Judah was to be the bringer of light to the Gentiles. These pagan peoples that had lived around them, right? That's why rebuilding the temple was so important. So that the nation of Judah could once again be the place where people could come and see and hear about God. And hear the gospel. The light of the world. That's what the nation of Judah was to be. Now what about for you and me? For us, the lampstand is a picture of the church. What did Jesus say in Matthew 5? You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are a city set on a hill. So you and I, together, the people of God, the church, are the lampstand. So when you see and hear about this lampstand, think of New City Church. Think of the church, capital C Church. The adopted sons and daughters of God. That's feature number one, the lampstand. Let's go on. What else does Zechariah see? He sees two olive trees. You see him there in the picture. One on each side of the lampstand. Now, what are these trees doing? These two trees, these olive trees, are constantly dripping olive oil into spouts or channels... It's kind of a picture of this. Two pipes which carry the oil from the trees down to the lampstand. It says in verse 2 that the lampstand has seven lamps with seven lips on each of the lamps. Now you know perhaps that the number seven is pretty significant in the Bible. It's the number of perfection. And so you have a total of seven times seven. Forty-nine lips or wicks, which are receiving oil from the two trees. Zechariah sees these two olive trees pouring an inexhaustible supply of oil into the lampstand. Golden oil is pouring out of the olive trees through the branches into these golden pipes and draining down the pipes into the bowl and from the bowl into the seven lips on each of the seven lamps on the lampstand. 
It's crazy. So this lampstand is putting out very, very bright light. So you have the lampstand, you have two olive trees. Thirdly, you have the oil itself. Oil is mentioned down in verse 12, which I didn't read. But you've got to ask, what does the oil represent? We saw what the lampstand represents, the church or the people of God. You have these olive, oil, or olive trees pouring oil. What does the oil represent? Oil throughout the Bible is a common picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is represented by this oil. In the Old Testament, kings were anointed with oil to represent the enabling power of the Holy Spirit so that they would do the work of the king. In the Old Testament, priests were anointed with oil to represent that they could only be priests by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Bible, oil is a symbol of the enabling and empowering power of the Holy Spirit. It even says in Acts chapter 10 that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. So oil is just simply uh, an analogy or a picture or a metaphor for the Holy Spirit of God. So you have the lampstand, the trees, the oil. Finally, you have a feature that is not in this picture, but it is in verse 7, and that is a mountain. A mountain. It says in verse 7, Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. What mountain is the angel referring to? Well, he's referring to the mountain of opposition that was coming from these pagan people around them. The opposition that the people had met with. The discouragements. The problems, the fears, the intimidation, the delays, the potholes, if you will. So God is making a promise in verse 7 when he says to the people through Zechariah, Who are you, O great mountain of opposition? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And Zerubbabel shall bring forward the top stone. That is the capstone of the temple. He will bring forward... You think... This temple is going to remain just a foundation? No. Zechariah, Zerubbabel is going to bring the capstone to the temple and place it on the temple to shouts of grace, grace to it. If I put that in my own words, I would put it this way a little more modernly. What are you, O mighty mountain? You are an anthill. Zerubbabel, you're going to finish this temple, and when you put the capstone in place, everybody in Judah is going to shout, Bravo! Bravo! Isn't it beautiful? Praise the Lord! Hallelujah! That's what God is predicting through his prophet, the prophet of encouragement, Zechariah. Do you see why Zechariah's vision would be so encouraging to the people of Judah? The temple would get built. The kingdom would advance. The gospel would be proclaimed in spite of the opposition of neighboring enemies, in spite of the weakness and the frailty of the people. Not by might, not by power, verse 6, 
but by the Spirit of God. Not by their great physical prowess. They didn't have any. Not by their military might. No, they were too weak. But by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, He, through the citizens of Holy Spirit-filled people, under the supervision of Holy Spirit-filled Zerubbabel the governor, he would rebuild this temple. And the people would be able to look back at it and shout grace, grace to it. So that is, those are the main features of this amazing vision. Let's talk about the meaning of it for you and me. We've seen what it signified to Zechariah and his people. What about, how does this apply? What is the meaning of this amazing vision for us today? Same thing as it was to Zechariah and the people of Judah. Not by might, nor by power, but by the Spirit of God. That is how it applies to you and me. Not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. We overcome our difficulties. We deal with our delays and problems and frustrations and setbacks. We move through 2024 despite whatever uncertainties await us, not by our ingenuity, our might, our wisdom, our talent, our trying harder, but by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we're going to do it. When you encounter mountains of opposition, you meet them and you manage those mountains not in your own strength, not because of your own goodness, not by your own willpower. I'm just going to muscle my way through. No, you do it by the Holy Spirit's constant dripping by drip, drop by drop ministry of grace. Do you believe that? Do I? Do I? Do you? You know, sometimes I wonder. We often act like and live day by day as if there is no Holy Spirit. We make decisions without consulting Him. We plan and strive and worry and fret. And just like Zerubbabel and the people of Judah, we lose heart. Because we're relying on ourselves and upon our own strength instead of the Holy Spirit. I recently was in a situation where I needed to have a hard conversation with somebody. I knew it was coming. I knew I needed to do it. I knew that we were going to get together. And for days and days, my stomach was in knots. I did nothing but worry about the situation. I didn't sleep. I couldn't concentrate on my work. I didn't pray. I didn't ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom or courage. I just totally caved in on myself. It was all up to me. I didn't factor the Holy Spirit into that situation whatsoever. I forgot about Zechariah's vision. I forgot about the oil dripping, constantly dripping into the lampstand and giving light to the world. I constantly worried about it. I forgot that it's not by my might. It's not by my power that I am going to be able to meet this mountain, this hard conversation. 
It's not by my own eloquence that I'm going to be able to have this hard con- uh, conversation with this person. I forgot that. It's by the Holy Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So what's it mean for you and me? It means that, well, let me move on to the third and last thing, the implications. The implications of this vision for you and me. I want to bring you four things to leave with you today. And maybe this will become uh, our, our, our preparation for the new year. And there are four words, all of which begin with the letter R. So maybe it'll be easier for you to remember that way and, I, and for me to remember too. The first one is to remember. To remember where your power comes from. That's implication number one. Where does your power come from? Power to have that hard conversation. Power to love your wife. Power to love your husband. Power to love your kids and raise them to obey the Lord. Power to obey your parents. Where does that come from, kids? Where does power to love your enemies and your neighbors come from? Where does the power to be a good worker, an an honorable boss, a disciplined student, where are you going to get power for for that power to age with grace and gratitude rather than bitterness and abrasiveness where does power come for new city church to thrive and grow is it because you have a new interim pastor is that where your power comes no john would say that that's not where your power comes from where does power to do anything come from the holy Spirit of God. That's the power source. He is your power source. Apart from me, says Jesus, you can do nothing. And he gives us the Holy Spirit in order to empower us. So, if success is to be achieved, if relationships are to be healed, if breakthroughs are going to happen, if sin is to be overcome... It's not because you and you alone are going to try harder to do it. It will be because the Holy Spirit is working in you and through you to meet that mountain of opposition, whatever it be. So, implication number one, remember this. Just simply remember it. Remember where your power comes from. It's the Holy Spirit. The oil dripping through the channels, into the bowl, into the lampstand, out into the life. He is our power. Secondly, rely upon that power. Rely consciously and constantly. Regardless of the size of the mountain, whether the mountain is big or small, don't lean on yourself. Don't even lean only on other people. Now, we should. There is an appropriate dependence upon others, right? We need each other, but ultimately our Enabling power comes from the Holy Spirit, so we must rely upon Him. Now, you say, well, how, Mike, that sounds very good. How, how do you do that? How do, I, how do I rely on someone I cannot see? Good question. Well, the means that God has ordained to have access to the power source is prayer. Prayer is the means of obtaining the help of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 33.3, one of our most famous or beloved Bible verses, says, Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. God is inviting us to pray. 
Call to me, I will answer you and tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. We see this life of prayer modeled by the Apostle Paul. At the end, for example, of his book of Romans, he says, pray for me that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. He says at the end of Ephesians, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth to proclaim the gospel. He says at the end of the letter to the Colossians, pray for us that God may open a door for the word. He says at the end of 1 Thessalonians, brothers, pray for us. He says at the end of 2 Thessalonians, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. Do you see what Paul is doing? He is not relying upon just himself and his ability to proclaim the gospel. He is asking for prayer because he realizes that he cannot do it without the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And so what does he do? He turns to prayer. And he says, brothers, sisters, pray. Please pray for me. We together need the Holy Spirit. So my encouragement to you at New City is to become more and more people of prayer. God delights to help us. He is waiting. He says, call to me and I will answer you. And the power that he wants to give us is through the work of the Holy Spirit. He is our paraclete. You may not have ever heard that word, but it means one who comes alongside and strengthens us and gives us wisdom and insight and counsel and help when we are helpless. I've been asking a bunch of people to give me one word that they would like me to pray for them for in 2024. Just one word. And I'm writing those words down. I've got a good list of one words that people are giving me that expresses a hope or a goal or a, uh, a wish for 2024. My word is prayer. I am asking God to help me. I'm not a very good prayer. I, I realize that. I'm asking God to help me become more frequent and more automatic in prayer. If it comes to your mind, would you pray for me that prayer would become a bigger part of my life in 2024? Maybe you'd like to take that. I don't want to call it a New Year's resolution because like you said, McCartney, New Year's resolutions come and go so fast. But I think if one word might express my goal, my hope, it's prayer. And I hope maybe you could join me in that, in that endeavor. Remember where your power comes from. Rely upon that power. And in the third place, now this is a tough one. You must run from those things that quench the Holy Spirit in your life. You know, there are things individually throughout our congregation here this morning. Everybody's got at least something that we do or say or think about. Our words, our actions, our thoughts that grieve the Holy Spirit. Yours may be different from mine. Mine might be different from yours. But we've all got something in our lives that we kind of routinely do that grieves the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And he goes on to make a list a list of things that grieve the Holy Spirit. He says, bitterness, wrath, anger, 
clamor, slander, malice, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Those are very specific things. You know what those things do? They embarrass the Holy Spirit. They wound his heart. And he sort of steps back and does not fill us as he would like to. And so we must run from those things that embarrass him and that wound him and that grieve him and that leave us alone to deal with the mountains of opposition without him. We don't want that, do we? We need his enabling power. So we must run from those things to that grieve him and wound him. You know, Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 5, to not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So to be filled with the Spirit is, I believe, back to our vision. It is to be open to that constant drip by drip, drop by drop filling of the Holy Spirit, that fresh anointing. With the oil of wisdom and joy and fruitfulness. We, we want to be open to that and run from the things that grieve the Holy Spirit and push him away. So friends, what I would draw from that is that it is possible to have the Holy Spirit. To be a Christian. And yet to not be filled with the Holy Spirit. So ask him to fill you. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you and give you a holy hatred of those things that he hates. Ask him to help you run from them whenever they rear their ugly heads. Because without the Holy Spirit's enabling grace, you and I can do nothing. Implication number four, not only remember, rely, and run, but rest. Rest in the promise that we read this morning. Zechariah 4.6 Not by might, nor by power, but by the Holy Spirit of God. It's not by your might, it's not by your ingenuity, your power, your trying harder. It's not by worrying that you're going to be able to do things. It's not by mere self-effort. It is by the Holy Spirit that you cope. It's by the Holy Spirit that you overcome And that is a promise. I'm mindful this morning that there probably are people in this room right now that are looking at some pretty big mountains. I don't know you very much of you at all. But I, we're people. We're human beings. I'm sure there are people in the room today that are looking at some pretty big mountains. Maybe it's a cancer mountain. Maybe it's a parenting mountain. Will my kids hold on to the faith? How am I going to raise my children to know and love the Lord? There are money mountains in this room. How am I going to pay my bills? I'm in a world of debt. There are probably marriage mountains in the room. How can I forgive him? How can I forgive her? Job mountains, you name it. There are mountains of opposition. To you... God is saying, be still. Know that I am the Lord. Remember Zechariah's vision. 
Remember the Holy Spirit. Rely on his power. Trust him. He didn't give up on his people then. He's not going to give up on you now. And do you know why I can confidently tell you that he will not give up on you? It's because Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the one John saw on the island of Patmos, is still walking about in the midst of the lampstands. He is here. He is with you. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet are like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice is like the roar of many waters. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And his face is like the sun shining in full strength. And he's saying to you, just like he said to John, Fear not. I'm the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. So who are you, O mighty mountain? It shall become a plain. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. God, thank you, thank you, that you love us so much that not only did you send Jesus to bear our sins and take them away as far as east is from west from us, but you also left us with the person of the Holy Spirit. He is here. He is with us. He is our paraclete. He's our helper, our counselor. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'll forgive us that we have often ignored you. We have often grieved you. We have done and said and thought about things that you find hurtful. And we ask, oh God, that you'll help us to remember that you are the power that we need to live by. I pray that you will help us to become people who depend on you more, who pray more, and who trust and rest in you more. Instead of just trying to muscle our way through life. And God, I pray for those who are facing a pretty big mountain today. Give them, oh God, the ability to rest in you. And to simply trust your spirit. That you will give them what they need to cope. To deal with it. To do the right thing. To keep walking. To keep trusting in you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.